You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. And welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Monica McLemore. Uh, she is a tenured associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco in the Family Healthcare Nursing Department and an affiliated scientist with Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health. She retired from clinical practice after a 28-year clinical nursing career. Her program of research is focused on understanding reproductive health and justice. To date, she has 61 peer-reviewed articles, op-eds, and commentaries, and her research has been cited in three amicus briefs to the Supreme Court of the United States and two National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine reports and a data visualization project in the 2019 Future of Medicine edition of Scientific American. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. McLemore. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, the pleasure is completely mine. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I do have to say, though, I might be coming out of clinical retirement because I signed up to be a contact tracer because, you know, I'm a huge like public health nurse. But I'll tell you about that later. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Actually, I was when I was before we get into our conversation. Um, I was uh, I, I I you know you you've inspired me to look at a few things in my life, uh, and uh, one of the things uh, that I recently went back and told my wife is I'm like I'm thinking about going back to school for public health. <laughs> so, uh, so she gave me, she gave me a few looks, uh, and then, uh, so it's still, we're still in, in negotiations. So, <laughs> so another uh, inspiratory story. Uh Oh, yeah, yeah. So, well, so. I love public health. And I, I have to tell you one of the reasons, you know, that I think, you know, nursing for me has been such a cool path is because I found public health nursing really, really early on in my career. Um, and I'm, I'm just, it is just like my favorite thing. And I've been very heartbroken and very frustrated to watch how unfun underfunded and unfunded public health has been. And if anybody doesn't believe me, COVID-19 has laid that painfully out to bear, um, I always like to remind people that the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, it currently doesn't have enough money to conduct its own research. It only compiles statistics from public health departments. And so the data we get out of CDC is only as good as, as what's being reported out of public health, which has been woefully defunded forever. But that, that, that gets back to a story of how I became like a public health nurse. And that, that's a long story. So I'll try to make it brief. So I knew I wanted to go into nursing when I was eight. In fact, I declared it to my family. So it's really funny, you know, to think about it now as a nursing faculty member, because like nobody in my family was in healthcare. 
My, my father, um, he was a, uh, first black state trooper in New Jersey. So he was a cop, but he was a Marine before that. And then he was a lawyer and then he became a judge and he retired as a judge. And my mom was in finance. My mom retired as one of the first black vice presidents of uh, what became Bank of America. And so her bank, uh, Core States, New Jersey National, had, had been acquired by Bank of America a couple years before she retired. So no, there was nobody in my family in healthcare, but I, I was born a preemie in 1969. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time around you know, hospitals, healthcare, nurses. I mean, I had leg base, leg braces, back braces, teeth braces, glasses. Like I was a really sort of sickly child. And I always was impressed by the nurses who took care of me. And I remember being eight years old and I looked my mother in the face and she was like, oh, you know, we were watching some television show. I have no idea what it was. Um, but she said, well, what do you think you want to do when you grow up? I said, I'm going to be a nurse. And she was like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting because we don't really have any nurses in our family, but okay, we'll figure it out, right? And I uh, I went to high school, um, and I kept telling people, I want to be a nurse, I want to be a nurse. And I went to school in New Jersey, and I always tell people I was built, but I have three degrees from public institutions, and we used to invest in education. And I went to nursing school in 1988 at the height of, again, another epidemic slash pandemic crisis because HIV was happening and we had a government that wasn't doing anything. Sound familiar? (laughs) And I remember being a nursing student. And, um, oh, the the reason I brought up high school is because, um, similar to California at that time, because we were in a nursing shortage, um, hospitals and the state came together and said that any nurse or any person who wanted to study nursing in college, uh, if you were in the top 10% of your class, um, that you could um, be able to uh, go to any of the state schools for free so that you didn't have to uh, pay tuition and fees at any of the state programs that had uh, nursing departments. um, If you were willing to um, work uh, in one of the safety net hospitals for two years. So we used to have investment programs in the future of nursing, where if you were a high school graduate, you were in the top 10% of your class, uh, you would get your tuition and fees paid for at a state school that had nursing programs. And you, and you would pay, work in the hospital for two years afterwards. And then you come out of school with no debt. That's how I ended up getting a baccalaureate degree in nursing. Um, you know, that I, that the tax fund, you know, payers funded for me because they wanted nurses to be able to take care of folks. And I worked at the hospital I was born at. I was at Mercer Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey. And so that same hospital where I was a preemie, I, I ended up working at, you know, and I came out of, you know, as a 21 year old, I, my birthday's on New Year's Eve. So I always, you know, I went to college at 17. And I went to college when you could still get a bachelor's degree in nursing, right? I, I didn't have to go to an accelerated program. My baccalaureate degree is in nursing. My master's is in public health. And my PhD is in oncology genomics in the context of nursing. But I, I could go and I became a nurse. I could, it, you know, administer narcotics before I could drink alcohol. Because I didn't hear 21 until that December, right? After graduating, right, right. I had a license. Weird. Anyway. Um, and I've never done anything else for pay. 
I have never done anything else since I got licensed as a nurse in 1993. I have never done anything else for pay. And I, I don't do anything else. I would, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Um, and if I had it all over to do again, um, I, I do it exactly the same way. And, you know, I, I moved to California, my college roommate and all my friends moved here. So I was like, mm, after my two year commitment was up time to go. So I left and I've been in the Bay area ever since. I worked at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinics as a nurse outpatient. That's where I first loved outpatient work. I had only worked inpatient, you know, med surge, cardiac step down, and then I moved to a, a gynecologic oncology step down unit where I worked at my last year and a half. And that's where I, I developed my love for reproductive health rights and justice, working with, you know, gynoc cancer patients. Like, whoa, right? Varying cancer, endometrial cancer. Like, it was, it was wow. But we also had a great number of uh, HIV patients because we were in a search step down and it gave me a huge amount of empathy for, uh, people who were either dying or close to dying. Um, and it really made me appreciate that birth and death are just two processes. It's just transitions that we help people with. And then I started to look around about four years out of school. I was like, Hmm, what am I going to do? Cause you know how you get itchy when you're like 26 and you're like, mm, I might have to do something else. So I started looking at graduate programs. And I shadowed some midwives, shadowed some nurse practitioners. I did not like that experience at all. I was like, they work, they're trying to work like physicians. And I I didn't think how physicians work was anything that I liked either. Um, And then I took a class, a public health class in epidemiology, and I was done. I was like, oh my God, yes. I I was excited. I loved epi. I still do. And uh, that's when I realized my master's was not going to be in nursing, that I was going to go back to groups of people. I was going to learn how to work in community. So my master's in public health has a concentration in community health education. And the reason I did that was very purposive because this was 1998 and we were getting close to mapping the human genome. And I know I was going to advance my education. I just didn't think I was going to finish the master's degree in May and start the PhD program in September. I, I actually, oh, wow. I didn't think I was going to do that. that no, no, no break in the middle. No. <laughs> brave. And that's crazy. brave. <laughs> that, that was crazy, but I had a goal. I wanted to be done PhD by the time I was 40. I wanted to be done graduate school. And it's not, I knew I didn't want to be a parent. Like that was never on my radar. Um, and I'm not, but I'm the aunt of the year to a lot of people's children. Let's just be clear. And I'm the fairy god aunt at that. So, um, but I, I knew I wanted to be able to get my education and schooling done because I had bigger fish to fry. I was like, I want to be a researcher. I really loved research. I wasn't, I know this is like heretical to say as a nursing faculty member, but I'm not like, I, I wasn't about, Oh, I want to teach. Like that really wasn't my thing. I, you know, and even now as I reflect on it, I have a very, um, have a very reticent relationship with teaching. Um, and you know, there, I can go into reasons why that is, but I really love research. Right. And so, you know, I did a lot of lab work. A lot of people don't know this about me, but I did a whole lot of ELISA Western blots and I was in the summer genetics Institute at national institutes of nursing research. And, I, did, I was a very geeky, oh, let's map the human genome, let's go. So when people get mad at me 
when I critique, you know, epi and, and basic science and, you know, our, our physician colleagues and other clinical folks, they think it's on the basis of, of just like, you know, nurse frustration or whatever, but it actually really comes from this very foundational place of, I know that we could do that work better and they're not doing it well. So, <laughs> you know, and, and that's a nursing skill that I learned working inpatient and working at clinics. And, you know, I, so to me, you know, my conceptualization of being a nurse researcher is no different than my conceptualization of being a nurse clinician or, you know, being a nurse. To me, those skills are highly transferable. And so I use them everywhere. Uh, and it's interesting you mentioned that because that's one of bit that's been one of my biggest uh, issues when sometimes I talk to nurses who've have a have have their like bachelor's in nursing but go into another field. Yep. Uh, and uh, I am I always tell people I'm really glad that they take those nursing skills and apply it to other just because you've you've moved on into a different field or for example a nurse practitioner role or a teaching role or an or researcher role uh the basis of everything is still nursing so that's what that's what makes us a profession uh you know uh, and we're able to take those skills and apply that's what that's what makes us unique in nursing absolutely and one of the things that makes me crazy and drives me up a tree is when people start talking about the skills and tasks of nursing as if that's the whole of nursing Right. I mean, you know, I, I was a very proud person that could put your IV in with my eyes closed, you know, in my clinic in October. That didn't make me any more or less of a nurse than my capacity to be a good peer reviewer. Right. This whole idea that people have a very narrow view of what they think nursing is, you know, has always frustrated me. In the same way that people can work in the ICU and operate 19 different machines to keep a human alive but they'll come look at you when you want them to learn a new electronic medical record or a new piece of technology. They want to stab you in the eye. And I look at them and I'm like, really? This is what we're doing right here. Right. So that kind of stuff makes me crazy. And, you know, I think the range, one of the reasons I love nursing so much is I get to do so many different things because the skill set is broad. Managing transitions. That is that I use that skill every day. Right. As a researcher, I use that skill every day as a mentor. I use that skill every day in faculty meetings. I, right. So to me, this whole idea that 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 nursing is a really small um, Pandora's box that you can pull out skills and tasks and things. I, I reject all of that. I can't be bothered. My favorite nurse who is like a Shiro right now, she works in the Congress. Lauren Underwood from Chicago, is, like Rep Underwood is badass, right? If you, know, if you know her, I'm trying to get her on this podcast. So. I have never met her. <laughs> You're supposed to be on a panel later on this month. I was right. at her fundraiser, her virtual fundraiser yesterday. Like, right, I right. love her. She wrote. She was yeah, the Academy awesome. opening speaker, and I was on a plane watching on my iPad, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like quietly stalk her. Uh, but I love her, but I, she's no less of a nurse because she's a policymaker. Right. Right. She's no less of a nurse because her, the people that she's serving is the public. And anybody that says otherwise really needs to examine what they think their definition of nursing is. We need nurses in space. Right. right? 
I mean, I would love to be the nurses at Disneyland. Like, I mean, we're <laughs> where we haven't been. And I think if we did, and I say this all the time, and this has one, been one of my biggest critiques around our lack of engagement around racial justice and really thinking about the rightful protests of the wrong, you know, and murderous unarmed shooting of black Americans, you know, we need to nurse the nation. If we can get past, right. If we can get past and remember what our skill set actually is, right. We could actually disrupt all of this. Right. And that's actually one of the things I, I, uh, I do with like, especially with my leadership courses is try mm-hmm. to push the envelope of where nurses are looking at what there's, what their capabilities are, not skill set, yeah. but capabilities are. Uh, and that's one of the things when I first asked my students, so uh, describe nursing to me and they all, almost all of them default into, oh, they do this at bedside medication. They, they, they yeah, default yeah. to the skill sets that they've learned through nursing school. Um, so I was pushed. I'm like, okay, let's push this envelope further. And I start bringing in, uh, you know, research and policy and public health and all these other components that nurses are everywhere. Um, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that, that I've learned from you, which I'm very, very grateful for, is you figured out also a way to introduce creativity and the arts back into nursing. Oh. Right? <laughs> Thank All you. the drawings and the beautiful graphics and just that sort of, tra- again, translation of ideas and concepts and as a visual learner i'm i'm very grateful for the art that you do by the way (laughs) thank you thank you i mean if we could i say this all the time if we can unleash the power of nursing we could have really made this all different and people don't really understand that but when i really break that down to say that there are voices of, of of like four million people at any given time point in history who have an understanding of navigation, of, of difficult conversations, whether it's between families and physicians or family members and patients or family members and family members or other members of our healthcare team. We, we do that all the time, right? We, we are able to facilitate those discussions. We're able to facilitate decision-making. We're able to be able to present a range of options to people Right. And give them the best evidence that we know that will assist them in making the best decisions that they need to make for themselves and their families and their communities. Right. We do that all the time. Absolutely. But unfortunately, when we come up against the invisible barrier of whiteness, when we come up against the invisible barrier of implicit and explicit bias, when we come up against, you know, racism. See, this is where we need courage. Because I have never met a nurse who didn't have the courage to challenge a wrong medication order. I have never met a nurse who didn't have the courage to really, really suggest differently to family members and to provide them evidence-based information about a condition that they are struggling with. I have never met people who didn't somehow find the courage to be able to do that, right? And But that courage comes from a knowledge base. That courage comes from reading, that courage comes from reading. <laughs> that courage comes from listening to other people. That courage comes from simulation and practice. That courage. Right. So I hold a very, very bright light up to the fact that if we want this all to be different, that nurses, we have some internal work to do 
to be able to think about our role in the preparation of the future healthcare workforce. And we know we prep everybody. It's not just nursing students. It's the residents on the unit. It's the new attendings that come. It's the visiting scholars and professors. It's, it's the housekeeper learner. It's everybody, right? People come into our institutions, clinics, hospitals, you know, nursing homes for 24-hour access to nurses, right? And I think, I, I, just to interrupt you real quick, and I think this is where things like the IOM report on the future of nursing, of having nurses at the executive levels and on boards and things like that become that much more important because I think, uh, you know, nursing brings a specific skill set of looking at population health as we do and looking at the importance of nurses addressing things like racism and uh, uh, you yeah. know, injustices, which I don't think that many other disciplines are looking at the same way we do. I completely agree. And you used a word earlier that I want to use now, which is leadership. I mean, one of the things that I think that, that, that is the most untapped resource in nursing and, 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 and particularly, you know, nursing the way that it's manifest in the United States is that we do not believe that, nurses at all levels are leaders, right? And yet at the same time, our role and our skill set and our responsibility and our competencies, in my mind, are all grounded in leadership. And we don't call it that though, right? I mean, they, we, we, we come up with all these really sort of fancy names and all this other stuff, but the truth of the matter is the way I see it, one of the most important and one of the most inherent skills of nurses is leadership. And I'll give you a perfect example. You know, bedside nurses lead by example. And yet when you call them out to say, hey, you did that really well. Oh my God, your clinical teaching was amazing. And oh, wow, you really, really brought that family along with that teaching and that education that you were doing. You're, you are just such a great nurse. And then we don't add the word leader after it. Right. 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 Or you're a great leader in nursing, right? We don't we don't socialize and we don't conceptualize our learners that way. And I would like for us to claim that space wherever we work. I mean, I have seen innovations in outpatient settings and call centers. I mean, I, I I've done most of my career, believe it or not, at this point, outpatient. Um, and even though my retirement, you know, at San Francisco General was, you know, from San Francisco General, I worked at a clinic that was inside a hospital, right? So it's one of those sort of complex things, but, you know, still outpatient service people, you know, most of the time didn't, you know, spend the night and weren't there for acute care, right? So when we think about how we even, even as faculty or even as policymakers, we actually need to, to be socializing earlier career investigators or earlier career nurses in, in the language that we want them to get comfortable using, right? That's why I don't call people junior and senior scholars. You will hear me use the clumsy early career investigator or mid-career investigator or mid-career nurse or, because this junior-senior thing is weird. Right. And it's part of the patriarchy that I don't really like. So right, right. to me, early career nurse is more accurate and it gets away from that infantilization that we have in nursing, which allows us to use more accurate terms about what it is that we do. 
right? I call nursing students my future colleagues and collaborators when I refer to them. I don't call them nursing babies. I don't call them, you know, eating our young and all that. All of that is part of what I see as the, um, the sort of insidious socialization that we sometimes have in our profession, which is to not accurately and correctly name who we are and what we do in the clinical policy, education, and research space. And that, that's, that's why I use all of those segments, too. Yeah. Because I, we also need people to get used to the fact that nurses are everywhere. And you're a nurse if you have a license. And I know a lot of people don't like it when I say that. But it, your being a nurse isn't defined exclusively by what you do. Right? Service to the public is a really, really important role and responsibility. And so I take that with the deepest seriousness. Um, and I think it's super, super important. That perspective around nursing allows us to have really different conversations. So I was just on a press call before I came on with you. And one of the things that I've been trying to get people to understand is we never needed to pit the public against healthcare professionals to make an, a logical argument around personal protective equipment, right? A, a higher level of appreciation for how do we all get out of a pandemic as safely as possible would have created room for a discussion around how do we get people the support and the accompaniment that they need in addition to making sure that people caring for them, how can we all get out of this you know, without increased COVID exposure, as opposed to saying that we as healthcare professionals needed to be over-prioritized or greater, more greatly prioritized than everybody, right? right. And, it, and it's similar to me to the same pitting, you know, that we, we've seen where, you know, people talk about, you know, mistreatment in healthcare environments and situations and burnout like they're two different things. To me, they're the same side of a different coin. Right. Because if our workplaces are underfunded and if our workplaces are inhumane, we, we can't be the only people experiencing that. Right. Right? Patients experience that, too. We just call it something else. Yeah. So I, I want us to, 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 to craft a, a new, not a new nursing taxonomy because we have too, too much. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I want us to align how we develop our current and future workforce towards where we see ourselves going. And in my mind, that's leadership because that's what I really think we do, whether it's leadership in education or leadership in policy or leadership in health services provision or leadership in public health or leadership in outpatient settings. I, 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 that's what I think we do. And how do we lead? We help to manage transitions. And so for me, I think we need a whole reconceptualization of how we do our work and what are the activities that are associated with those higher level skills. Um, I, uh, and and br brilliantly said, because uh, I had a professor um, at, during my PhD program and she always said, words matter. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, learning the correct words and usage and they're powerful, that using the words power uh, is important. So when we use things like nurse leadership, and I think part of problems also, nurses are so 
sometimes it feels like nurses are so uh, have 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 this bubble that this is my title. Mm-hmm. Um, so and they're and they don't step out of that bubble while you know while they're in a certain they have that a certain title in place. I don't know if I'm yeah. making sense here. Um, yeah, it does. Like I'm a nurse practitioner, I shouldn't be doing like policy, or I'm an educator, I shouldn't be doing administration in or leadership you know, some kind of a nurse leadership position administration. So those are, I think some, that's some of the uh, barriers or, you know, some stereotypes I think we need to help nurses get out of so they can branch out into all these other places where they can have impact. I completely agree with you. And I think part of the problem is, um, and, and this is really tricky, right? On the one hand, we've allowed other people to set the parameters under which we're supposed to work, Right. And at the same time, though, when we do want to break out of those parameters, it's a battle, right? I'm going to be a perfect example out of my own life. I mean, you know, I have spent a lot of time being disruptive because I don't believe in healthcare hierarchy, right? I actually believe that physicians are colleagues, and I really appreciate them. Um, I believe that social work are colleagues, and I really appreciate them, and dentistry and pharmacy and all the members of the healthcare team, right? But that, that each of us brings a unique and yet complementary skill set that are all essential, you know, if we really, really want to talk about getting people the care that they need and that they deserve, right? So that, that's where I come at things from. But there's a lot of people who are emotionally and, and financially and I think physically invested in healthcare hierarchy. I mean, I have been very frustrated. I have had to fight journal editors to allow for community members who have met the criteria for authorship to be able to be on my papers because their their pull down menus when you want to submit have to have some kind of credential. These are structural issues right. that keep us in our place. Right? right. Or when you think about there are certain kinds of fellowships or certain kinds of accolades or certain kinds of support or media training or some things that are for some groups of healthcare, as opposed to thinking about us as a team that continues to silo us and to privilege some over the other. I, I get very grumpy about this. I spend a lot of time fighting about this yeah. because I don't believe that any one perspective is inclusive of all perspectives. And I don't believe that, you know, physicians can speak for nurses and nurses can speak for physicians. We can speak with each other. Right. But but this whole, there's not enough, the scarcity, Oh my goodness. Like all that drives me crazy. And so what I'd like to see nursing do is to make a collective decision that we're going to spend some of that most trusted currency. I said this on Twitter all the time. When are we going to spend? <laughs> I'd like to spend some of that. I think so far the spin has stopped at that. We're right. not profession or more ethical profession. I mean, if this is then, the year of the nurse and the midwife, let's get on that. Right? So a lot of people forget. And this has been like really fascinating, right? Yeah. If 2020 was really the year of the nurse and the midwife, how do how we get here? Like, how did we get here? And and so when are we going to take that currency of being so trusted and ask the public to come along with us on a different ride? Right. I absolutely agree. Right. 
And that to me, again, requires leadership and it requires local leadership. It requires regional leadership, (laughs) national leadership, right? I am not a person who really thinks we're going to get this top down. I can't go to Sigma or I can't go to American Nurses Association or I can't go to the academy and be like, y'all need to fix this. Right. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I and and on, on a national level, I've I've talked to a few of our nurse leaders on a national level, and they have great uh, ideas on how to uh, on what nursing should be doing or how to bring the you know nursing together. But at the same time, uh, I'm not seeing that connection on a local level, like you mentioned. I think that it needs to be on an individual nurse basis. Of are you? Uh, are you members of nursing organizations? Are you active members of those nursing organizations? What are you doing on a local level that can trickle up as opposed to waiting for this national all-encompassing thing? Because, uh, you know, they don't have the bandwidth to do that. But I think we have on an individual looking at a circle of influence. Where's your circle of influence sitting at? Is it on you as an individual or are you increasing that circle of influence within nursing organizations and within, uh, you know, your your workplace or your academic uh, uh, institutions? And this is where I think nursing has a lot to learn from groups like Black Mamas Matter or, you know, Black Lives Matter or even doula collectives. Right. These are not groups that waited for some big national figurehead to be able to organize locally and to be able to make change and make things differently. Right. Right. And so for me, I think one of the things that's also frustrated me, it's a both and right. It's not an either or many of us were waiting. Many of us in nursing were waiting for nursing organizations to really step forward and to lead around how to nurse the nation in the context of, you know, continued historical racial injustice. Right. But 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 you some of them same people wasn't doing nothing luckily. They both and right. And so we've gotta stop waiting for the knight on the white horse to come wave the wand and fix everything. Because we have to realize that part of the job of the village is to make sure that the road is clear so the, the horse can come riding up, right? So there's this whole, you know, I'm trying to think about better allegories. And better things that we could use in nursing to get people to understand it, it is a both and, right? And that accountability, professional accountability, specifically in nursing, is lacking because historically we've always farmed that out to our professional organizations, right? And national professional organizations. When the truth of the matter is, many national professional organizations are are struggling because you can't even get the local people together, right? right. And so how can we think about, and, and, and I have thoughts about that, right? I mean, I think part of it is um, some of these organizations are dated, right? You can't, they ain't got no website. They ain't got no social media presence. The newer nurses don't know nothing about them. So why the hell should they, right? So there's that. So there's the dated piece, but there's also the other piece, which I think is, you know, we have not properly invested in both local and national. We've always had this sort of vision around we have to save what we have. We have to keep what we've got as opposed to like building something completely different. And so to me, it is, it is it, again, it has to be a both end. The other thing is how powerful 
could we have been, and I know this is super controversial, but I feel very strongly about this. Um, if everybody would have circled up behind the American Public Health Association. Yep. Right. People forget that many organizations, at least in my field, because I work in, you know, reproductive health rights and justice. Many like American College of Nurse Midwives, American uh, Association of Women's Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nursing, ACOG, like all of the sort of big organizations that are currently in existence, at least in reproductive health rights and justice, were born at APHA. They all were some caucus or some subsection or something, right? How cool would it have been at shelter in place if everybody would have circled up and said, okay, we can't have annual meetings. We're not going to make people compete and have multiple, you know, uh, virtual meetings and this and that, still try to charge people full registration fees and doing all (laughs) right. We're all going to circle up because we want to make demands the reinvestment of public health, you know, the CDC's response has been unacceptable. We are going to have a unified front around this. And I'm not saying this because I'm the sexual reproductive health chair under APHA. I think that if healthcare wants to take back its power, and if we want to take back our authority, and if we really, really want to demand uh, an anecdote or an antidote, excuse me, to misinformation and you know weirdness then we need some we need a unified front and and that's one of the things that you know um uh, and uh, you know going really quick to the black lives matter movement mm-hmm. uh in in recent weeks uh and actually i've asked some some national uh, you know uh, leadership i'm like why do we not have one vote. Why are we not coming as nursing with one message? Every organization put this, I hate to call it whitewashed, but some little bit of whitewash message out there that was politically correct and not very controversial. And actually, APH is APHA, I hope I'm saying that right, um, actually came up with a very strong message. I said, why can't we come up with one strong message as to where nursing stands on this matter uh, instead of all these small? Or, you know, some individuals came out with messages, but as, you know, organizations came out with these messages. And actually, I was pretty, I think I was kind of vocal about it on on, on social media. I was like, this is not okay. I've been this very is- vocal about this. But you know why we can't have a unified message? You know why? Well. What'd they tell you? Because I'll tell well, you that. Well, I mean, I, I mean, a lot of it has to do with, you know, board members and what the what they were agreeing on. They don't want to stir the pot. They don't want to lose membership. They don't want to, um, you know, that's, you know, but I don't, um, I don't know. I think it's fear. Right. To me, yeah. it all boils down to fear because if Stakems can be killing it on Twitter and if you got all sorts of companies able to put out relatively, you know, innocuous and short statements that are quite helpful, I think it's fear, right? And the truth of the matter is, this is the other sort of dirty little secret that I, I, I'm not necessarily sure where, where this comes from. But I think nursing waited to see who was going to be the first out the gate to be able to figure out what they actually were going to say. I actually think people leading right now Um, don't know how to lead during multiple pandemics. And so people are making it up on the fly as they go along, or they are being guided by fear. And so as long as those two things are, are, you know, hypotheses that are, that are explorable, then I end up feeling like, you know, 
then you need to listen to other groups that are leading right. and have amplifying them. Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's a great point because, uh, you know, the American Nurses Association did not have to be the leader on a certain thing, right? Uh, why can't, on, you know, like, you know, something like that, you know, uh, passing, you know, especially with COVID-19, for example, that could have very easily uh, gone to public health sector and said, we're going to follow public health. Yep. And we're going to let them lead. And when there was something else that was in our uh, area of expertise, and we're going to say, okay, you know, now we're going to lead on this. Or, or, or you know, when PPE happened, following the lead of occupational health and really listening to the occupational health. But see, we don't have that kind of allegiance. We don't have that kind of roadmap. We don't have that kind of shared appreciation for that was what was required. Right. And I That's working you yeah, know, that's working in silos, right? Yeah, They're working in silos component. Because everybody started scrambling around, how can we survive this, right? This is one of the problems when economics is the only outcome that you're hoping to see return when you're thinking about pandemics. I thought Albert Camus told us this in the play, that one of the things that you have to think about is what is the outcome metric that you want to be able to see happen if people actually survive a natural disaster, if people survive a pandemic, or if people survive war, if people survive an infectious agent, right? The economy can't be the only outcome metric that we all care about. Right. One could have been solidarity. We could have had a purposive, you know, uh, allegiance of professional organizations so that, that, if one big one survived, that all of them could have reconfigured themselves in ways that would allow for a people to still get what they need, right? Evidence-based content, connection, you know, meetings, all of that. This get, we had a whole window to reimagine all of this. And what do we do? Everybody scrambled to their separate quarters and tried to, like, save their marbles. Right. Right, and, and and it's unfortunate that you know that seems to be uh, to be happening. And I was actually a little bit, you know, I, I was actually glad to hear uh, uh, Dr. Grant, who's the president of the ANA, actually talk about uh, you know how they're trying to reach out to uh, other nursing organizations and yeah. become more collaborative. Like for example, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, but, but Hispanic Nurses Associations and the, sure, but again, this is a place where. You know, and Black Mamas Matter Alliance has taught us this as well. There are Black women-led community-based organizations, and I'll have I'll be happy to get you links to those organizations where we should have been following, you know, their lead. And so, a, another thing that I think that that we we get caught up in is it didn't have to be a nursing organization that that whose lead we wanted to be able to follow. What we needed to do was to do some translation of some of those messages that. In, in in language that nurses could understand, right? But but the idea that we had to generate it, and that everybody had to generate it, that that that's like so old, right? You can tell that those are people who do not amplify anything on social media or who have not had any kind of socialization around amplification versus right. generation, right? right. And, and that's and that's and that's huge that we have that we're looking at things and I've seen it with colleagues unfortunately yeah. uh, that they are they have difficulty celebrating other people they have difficulty yeah. amplifying. Uh, amplifying other people's research and work and because yeah. everybody's looking at what about me and it doesn't work the what about me doesn't work and it's actually one of the reasons I started this podcast I want to make sure that other people I that I can you know uh, share other people's work because it is that important 
important uh, that people learn from people like yourselves and, and and other nurse leaders and mentors and people who are doing great things within the world of nursing. Well, and the other thing that I think that we have a we had a missed opportunity on, but we can actually fix as well, um, is this whole idea of who do we want to be post pandemic, right? As nurses, right? So if if anything that has come forward that should have activated um, in the context of nursing is that we actually have some relatively simple demands of people like the Joint Commission mm. and everybody else who has been silent you know, throughout this whole pandemic situation of looking at, you know, relaxation of standards and procedures and protocols that, you know, maybe we need to have a different conversation with them. Right. right? Maybe we need to sit down and have a different conversation with public health and surveyors and other types of people and team up with them, not from an adversarial place or, or even the, um, the uh, magnet folks. We, we, we need to sit some people down <laughs> and, and uh, say the following sentence. We are disappointed in how, you know, we have not, you know, aligned ourselves in the context of COVID-19 to be able to provide the public the health services that they've needed. So let's have a discussion about this. Right? And that's I, I want everybody just to go back to what it was and hope that the elective surgeries come back and can save our healthcare institutions. And that should be happening, you know, like a month or two months ago, not when everything's calmed down, everything's good to go. And exactly. We'll be ready for the next one. Because, well, yeah, yeah, I totally yeah. agree. With him. We all need to be talking about right now, what innovations have been spawned because of, because of COVID-19. Cause I just said this on a, on a press call as well. You know, there's been like three really good things that have come out of COVID-19 that are, that are weird to say, but they're actually really good. And they come, you know, mostly out of maternal health space, but they have implications for the rest of healthcare. I'll give you all three really quickly. Number one, we had access to national licensure long before a pandemic, but people said we couldn't work across state lines. Oh, and all of a sudden, my institution can send <laughs> New York City and nurses to New York City and Navajo Nation in Utah and Arizona because COVID, right? right. Or, oh, my goodness, you know, you can't bill and, and do in-person business and telehealth and da 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 And all of a sudden, you can't. All of a sudden, we got that going on, right? Or having discussions about what healthcare actually really needs to take place in institutions anyway. Right. Let we be driving that discussion now. What are we prepared to make permanent? What are we prepared to demand? Let's spend some of that most trusted currency. Y'all left us to die. We can get our PPE. Look, right now we're telling you that we want this this national licensure situation. We want to be able to send people across state lines. Absolutely. Because at least in my field, you know, most counties don't have obstetric providers. Most counties don't have reproductive health rights and justice providers. So. We've always seen moving across state lines as a potential opportunity to resolve that. Right. Right. This telehealth piece. I hear from patients all the time. They don't have to take three buses and find childcare and wait three hours in our waiting room just to become seen for their 15 minute appointment. Right. Right. Game changing. Yeah. Let's stay on that cutting edge. Let's, let's be nurses of COVID to push for things that, that we know 
have been successful, that have been innovations in this context. Let's make that permanent. Yeah, and it's interesting that those conversations come up because people are like, oh, it's never been done before. We don't know what it's going to look like. Not only did it happen right now during COVID-19, but the VA has been doing it. Hello? The, the federal government the federal government has been doing this forever. Exactly. This whole idea, I, that should be an unacceptable response from people, right? Absolutely. I, I completely And agree. we should be leading those discussions. Yes. That's Absolutely. what I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much for this. Um, um, I, I don't I don't want to end this podcast uh, before we talk a little bit about your work with uh, with reproductive justice. Yeah, uh, and, of course. And, yeah. and, and I'm, I, I approach this with, with as a as a novice. I had I do not have the background other than I have two kids. Understood. Uh, <laughs> uh, Let so me I'm gonna hand this over to you. Yeah, let me talk you through a little bit on reproductive justice. And quite frankly, you know, I'm working on a piece right now to explain that we will never achieve economic justice or racial justice without reproductive justice. And reproductive justice is a is a term that was coined by black women in the South um, and, and women of color. Uh, there were 12 of them who got together and wanted to talk about reproductive health and social justice. And it is a, a framework a theoretical construct, a praxis um, that really posits that that people, and it's grounded in human rights, so that people have the human right to make family and kin in whatever ways that they see fit. Um, and that that's really different than saying that you have a choice, right? So it covers people who have infertility, people who want to be married who don't. You, can, you have the human right to be able to make family and kin as you see fit. You have a human right to prevent and or in pregnancy uh, in, in whatever ways with dignity that you deem appropriate. You have the right to parent your children with dignity without fear of violence from any individual or from the state. And you have a right to maintain your children so that incarcerated persons shouldn't have to give up their children or children shouldn't be separated from their parents at the border. Gives you very simple language to be able to say stuff like that, right? But then reproductive justice also denotes the fact that you can disassociate sex from reproduction. That's super important because you also, that opens up opportunities for us to have better, again, authentic conversations with each other and our children about healthy sexuality and consent and pleasure, right? So for me, reproductive justice, when I found it as an organizing frame for me to really help to understand the underpinnings of my work, and I will forever be grateful to, you know, Sister Song, you know, uh, Black Women's Reproductive Justice Collective, and I will forever be grateful to the Black Mamas Matter Alliance and all the 14 kindred partner organizations that fall under that alliance umbrella. Reproductive justice was born out of advocacy space, but it has applicability in public health and in clinical health services provision, and it guides most of the work that I, that I do, because I really believe that if we allow people to get the care that they need um, and the care that they deserve and that everyone deserves good care. I mean, this is, this is language that nurses could really get around, right? I say to people all the time, you know, regardless of how pregnancies end, cause they all end, people deserve really great care. Right. Who's going to be like, no, <laughs> Right. But when you get caught in the upstream argument that really 
people are unprepared to have in terms of how pregnancies in, whether that's a birth or an abortion or, you know, a miscarriage or an intrauterine fetal demise or, you know, a failed infertility treatment. People don't have the language to talk about all that. Right. And so for me, it, it allows you to be able to center the patient. We talk about patient centeredness all the time. And for a lot of people, that means, well, the patients end up doing what we want them to do as opposed to really eliciting what the patient wants to be able to do and making sure that they have what they need in order to be able to do that. So that's why I love reproductive justice. And that's why I use it in my work. And that's why it really frames for me and allows me to have collaborative partners. That's why I can say to the American Nurses Association, did y'all reach out to Black Mamas Matter Alliance? Because y'all really should be following the folks who are leading right now. Or did you reach out to this song Reproductive Justice Collective in Atlanta? Because you know they're doing a whole set of events around, you know, black motherhood and moms who've lost people to unarmed police shootings. If we're looking at the mental health of folks trying to survive both pandemics right now, right? I worry that we're going to, I mean, 116,000 Americans have died in 10 weeks and there's been no public grief, no acknowledgement of those deaths, no mourning. What's wrong with us? Nurses should be leading that. But we've gotten so accustomed to, to not having our dead be honored. I mean, I remind people we've been at war with Afghanistan for almost 20 years. We've not seen a body coming back. Right? We're so used to it. And we're, still, and we're still losing, you know, uh, uh, our, our uh, service members over there. People need so. to be honored. They, they, their families need to know that they have not died and been forgotten. What is wrong with us? We need to get back to some basics around nursing here, you know, and that we, our organizations are not screaming for, I mean, I was really happy to see that the New York Times was able to publish a thousand names of the hundred thousand people when we met that gruesome milestone, but how, where's the truth and reconciliation in the context of the fact that we've lost so many of our citizens right. and that those deaths have been disproportionately born, been born by black and brown people. Seriously? And we want to call ourselves nursing? Uh, it's definitely, uh, it's, a, it's been disheartening at certain points uh, of looking at people just trying to get back into restaurants and bars. And, uh, and, I, and I'm seeing people and that's where their uh, mind is at. And uh, it's, it's, it's been, it has been disheartening. And, you know, my wife and I actually talk about this quite, quite a bit. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, what is, why, when did socialism, when did people, not socialization, socialization is important, uh, but when did going out of the house and going to restaurants and things like that become more important than uh, us dealing with what's going on in the world? And it's not just the U.S., it's not just your city, it's it's the entire world. The entire world is still dealing with this. And why uh, so are we been, not leading? Right. In the a same better question. Like when, when Ebola hit, remember how much acknowledgement and recognition there was around, you know, the nurses who led the charge around Ebola. Like, again, coming back to when are we going to be able to, you know, lead and spend some of that most trusted currency? Because I have ways in which that we could think about doing that. Right. I, I actually think that one of the things that we should be doing is, you know, a nursing acknowledgement, you know, and if we want to start small and say, oh, let's acknowledge all the nurses that have, you know, died or succumbed to COVID-19, mm. move it out to a bigger space, 
then our public health people can take up the mantle of, you know, the elderly. Why can't we put, create a round table where we're going to create a memorial to the people who have died in this crisis? We could be doing that right now, y'all. Yes. Right. Asking for a picture, even if it's nothing more than a PowerPoint slide set of everyone who has been touched. Like there is, I mean, we learn nothing from the HIV quilt. We learn nothing from the AIDS quilt. Come on, y'all. I mean, I, I, I get that there's multiple things happening. But again, going back to basics of nursing, if we unleash the creativity and the power of nursing, we could really respect, revere, and honor the people who have died from COVID-19. We could respect and revere and honor the unarmed black Americans who have been killed inappropriately by the police, we can respect, revere, and honor the healthcare workers that were lost without personal protective equipment. We can do all three of those things, y'all. It wouldn't take very much to do it. <laughs> it would not take a lot of energy for us to do that. But we need, we need enough of us willing to do so. I mean, how many people showed their stethoscope? around a beauty pageant that ended oh, yeah, that's right. up, written, that's ended right. up on the view, right? I mean, that's why I can't mess with people because <laughs> I can't be the only person thinking about these things, y'all. I'm sure other people have great ideas. That's how the Nursing Mutual Aid Conference came forward. Let's create a space for people whose presentations got canceled that will need to have a citable link that they actually had an accepted presentation. How can we be taking better care of us? We need to nurse the nation, y'all. I can use some help. Yep, definitely. Yeah, I've got my hand raised, so. I see you. <laughs> but we need, we, maybe we need a suggestion box that we can really allow people who listen to this we need we can be doing stuff y'all it doesn't have to be revolutionary it can be revolutionary at the local level but let's unleash nursing and let's nurse the nation can we do that y'all because we, we and beyond in our clinical roles because every nurse that I know is not just a nurse at work so if that's true, then, then how can we be preparing for the grief, for the loss, for the, the mourning, the, you know, the, the deferred dreams, right? How can we think about a different future, y'all? And I think that nursing is the, one of the few groups of people, if we get past our own ridiculousness and fear, that could actually do it. That's what I think. Thank you. Thank, uh, um, uh, you. You've brought up some some great great points, and and hopefully we'll be able to um, do something uh, meaningful um, right I now. Hope so. I hope not so. not later, but right now. Yeah. Uh, how can we do something meaningful right now? Um, and you know, as you mentioned, how how to become nurse leaders uh, for the entire nation, not just uh, in our own circles. I agree. So I appreciate. It. Um, want to be uh, respectful of the, of your time. Uh, anything else, any last words you want to, you want to leave us with? Um, a couple of things. I mean, number one, I appreciate you doing this and I, I fully support you continuing to talk to nurse leaders because I think collectively, if we all put our heads together, we could come up with something really, really transformative. 
Um, and to, you know, early career investigators, make career folks, late career folks, you know, nursing is all I've ever done as an adult for pay and, and, you know, will probably do when I'm retired. Um, because it is, it's such a gift to be able to, to care for families and communities and individuals. And, you know, I think if we remember that and our role in service, that we actually could really nurse the nation and make this all different. And I truly believe that. So. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your mentorship. Uh, like I mentioned, uh, it's, I've only known you for actually a short period of time. We met at the, <laughs> the at the Jonas leadership conference, uh, uh, at, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, haven't known you, but uh, again, I've been following you and your on social media and your work, and uh, it's been amazing. And I'm grateful for having you in my life and in the nursing world. Well, it's mutual uh, because I have been very grateful for not only your artistry, but your insight in lifting up our veteran colleagues and our active military colleagues. I mean, it is just it's been very, very wonderful. And so, I, I am grateful that I you know, accepted Dr. Montalvo's invitation to come talk with you all about social media, because it's been really, really great to know that we have colleagues and collaborators and friends who are doing this work. Grateful for you. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, and, and with that, I want to wish you a fantastic rest of your day. And uh, to our listeners, uh, thank you for uh, tuning in and listening in. Uh, my guest has been Dr. Monica McLemore, and we look forward to uh, bringing more of these podcasts to you with the RN Mentor. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.